As we uh, transition to our sermon time, let us go back to prayer. Let's go back to uh, talking to the Lord to prepare ourselves for this very important passage today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this opportunity that we have. And it's important that we pray, as you have reminded us now for the past several weeks, seeing now today for the, the third time that you tell your disciples to pray in the context of this mission, this, this fruit-producing gospel mission that they were being prepared for, that we now as the church today have inherited, that, that we've taken the baton as we run our leg of the gospel mission race. Let us be reminded more than anything of the need that we have to be dependent upon you and your power to bring about salvation in the hearts of men, women, and children, both here and around the world. Let us not neglect this prevailing prayer to the Lord of the mission field, that you would produce the fruit through us that we long to see, both in terms of our character and in terms of individuals coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Be with us now as we look back into your word in John chapter 15. Speak to us, Lord, that we would all leave here today different because you had visited us faithfully through the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Good morning again. My name is Ted, one of the pastors here, and we are on a journey through the gospel of John that we're continuing today. We call it I Am, and we are in John chapter 15. So please turn your Bibles to John chapter 15. And if you were with us last week, we started uh, the second mini-series in these upper room discourses uh, after the Lord's Supper, during the, the night that Jesus would be betrayed, and we call this the friend who gives. We're we're seeing now for several weeks that Jesus is the friend who gives to us, to his, his people. And so we're going to continue that in this great passage today. And last week's sermon was entitled, The Fruitful Christian. The Fruitful Christian. And, and we saw in the text that what makes someone a fruitful Christian is first and foremost, life in Christ, salvation, life in Christ. Secondly, for those who have been saved, abiding in Christ, the importance of abiding, living life to the fullest, flourishing and being fruitful, and then finally, by imitating Christ. We see this great example of how he served the Father, and we are to follow. And today, we're continuing, really, continuing that passage. It's kind of like part two of life in the vine. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. And as you can see on the screen, uh, by the way, thanks to Carla Hall and her brilliance for getting one of our TVs working because uh, that was just a few minutes before we began today. But as you'll see, we are the fruitful church. The point isn't just to be individually fruitful, but to come together as a body of Christ and to be the fruitful church. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Here on the screen, you'll see a passage from 1 John. In fact, this is the first of three, really four, because uh, uh, Micah used one to, in our call to worship. And I realized this week that 1 John is really the upper room discourse applied. It's almost like John took uh, what he had written in 13 through 17, and he's now giving it to us in a letter, applying this to the church. And so this is really a summary of what we learned last week. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, that's Jesus, walked. And as I was working on the sermon this week, I was reminded about a very special group of Christians in church history. 
they kind of fall in between the cracks of the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformation, and they are known as the Moravian Church. Is anyone familiar with the Moravian Church? These were the followers of a reformer that was 100 years before Martin Luther. His name was Jan Hus, one of my favorite guys in church history. God was already working and reforming the church in Czechoslovakia, in Prague, through this man. Now, he was burnt at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church, but his followers continued. Again, 100 years before Martin Luther. And several centuries later, they would embark on world missions 60 years before our great William Carey, the first Baptist modern missionary. So when you think of the Moravian church, think about this. They were doing it before the rest of us got around to doing it. And one of their missionary journeys that happened was incredible. You may have heard this story before. This was, uh, well, I'll just read it. On October 8th, 1732, again, 60 years before William Carey, a Dutch ship left the Copenhagen Harbor bound for the Danish West Indies. That would be St. Thomas. On board were two of the first Moravian missionaries, John Leonard Dober, a potter, and David Nitschman, a carpenter. Both were skilled speakers and ready to, listen to this, sell themselves into slavery to reach the slaves of the West Indies. As the ship slipped away, they lifted up a cry that would one day become the rallying call for all Moravian missionaries. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And if you've heard the story, these men, this group had already tried to get into St. Thomas and St. Croix, and, and they wouldn't let them. They wanted to share the gospel with the slaves. So what do they end up doing? Selling themselves into slavery to be able to take the gospel to these slaves. How incredible of an example. These were fruitful Christians. So as we approach the text today, we're going to see as a church, uh, in fact, here's the big idea. Jesus prepares his apostles and us for the gospel mission by revealing four characteristics of a church that abides in him so that we too can be fruitful. Now, of these four characteristics, it's important. You're going to see them come up through the service. In fact, we'll look at the first one now, save to love. And you'll notice with these characteristics that there's actually two characteristics in each title. The first one, it's not up yet, but the first one, saved, uh, tells us what God has done, right? And then the second one shows us what we are to do. So think about it, saved to love. He did that. He did the salvation. But now as a result of his initiation, what we are to do as Christians is to love one another as well as our neighbor. So look with me at the text as we rejoin it in John 15, verse 12. And we're actually gonna read verse 10 and then jump down into 12. Jesus says this, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Skipping down to verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So really quick question, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Silas, you got the answer? The chicken, yes. Thank you, that was excellent. The chicken came first. Now, why do I ask that? Because we should have a similar question coming from this passage. What comes first, obedience to Christ or the ability to obey Christ? 
How you answer that is really important. And what I believe this passage is teaching us is that the ability to obey precedes obedience. The ability to obey is a gift of grace by God that the Holy Spirit does in us that then leads us to obey. Why is that important? Because when we look at what we see in verse 10 and 14, look at verse 10. He says, if you obey my commandments. And then in verse 14, if you do what I command you, you are my friend. The point there isn't do all these things so you can be my friend. The point is those who are obeying Christ already are his friends. Very critical, very important that we understand that. But look with me at verse 13, because we have to see this great example of love that Jesus has done for us. In verse 13, he says, greater love. What is this greater love? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. What was Jesus getting ready to do in just a few short hours, but die on the cross for the disciples and, of course, for his people throughout time. And that's so crucial for us to see that. Now, the disciples don't understand what's going on right now. They don't, they don't get it. They know something's about to happen. They know Jesus is leaving. We now, reading this, understand what that's referring to. That's referring to the greatest example of love, which was Jesus's sacrificial death. There is no greater example. His example of love is limitless, inexhaustible, unmeasurable. And that is our example so that we can go to verse 12 and see this commandment. And if you remember, we already learned this a few weeks ago at the end of chapter 13. We call it the new commandment. And here it is. This is my commandment. This is the new commandment that you love one another. How? As I have loved you. Now, they would understand this as, you know, when we get through this period of time and Jesus dies, he raises from the dead, he visits with them, he goes back to the Father, and eventually they receive the Holy Spirit. It would all come together. It would all come together. But this is the example. And when, John, when Jesus says, love one another, what he's talking about is fellow believers in the body of Christ. It's under the umbrella of the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. But specifically and nuanced now, he is calling us as a church He's commanding us as a church to love one another in the body. And as we learn in John 13, 35, that will actually work to display the gospel to a watching world. There's an evangelistic component to loving in this way. Jesus has saved us to love, to love one another. Look at this verse from 1 John three sixteen. There John says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. There it is. We know John 3.16. Here's 1 John 3.16. Beautiful display of the gospel. So as we, as we think in terms of application, what, what this passage is teaching us, what, what we come to understand through the gospel is this. We have been redeemed with such an incredible love, and we have been redeemed from the restrictive love of self, the restrictive love of self. Look at this passage, the third and final passage from 1 John, and this is the same one we already saw at the call to worship. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. Again, he initiated this. In initiating it, we now have the ability to imitate our Savior, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, 
God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That's amazing. What he's saying there at the end is no one has ever seen God. But when the church, when the body of Christ stops being so self-centered and individualistic and puts others' needs before them within the body, people see God. People see God through the actions of a body of Christ loving each other as Christ loves us. That's our first charge. That's the first characteristic. We, we can't skip this step and, and get to ministry and programs and, and doing all these things if we're not loving one another. How can we give to the world what we don't even have here in the body of Christ? We've got to do well here, and we need the Holy Spirit's help to do it. In fact, that's the case with all of these. Remember, uh, chapter 15 is sandwiched between all this teaching on the Holy Spirit. When we get to the vine and the branches, we're, we're learning a lot about Jesus and the Father. We can't forget the Holy Spirit is implied. He is the source of power and help that we need to achieve all four of these great characteristics. But as far as commandments go, loving one another on paper isn't that bad. Think of all the things Jesus could have given us as a commandment as the church, right? To me, this is the, you know, my, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But then we have to ask ourselves, why is it so hard to love each other? Whether in a marriage, in a household, or here in the body of Christ, why is it so hard to love each other. Listen, I struggle with it as much as anyone of you. And the reason is this, because we love ourselves way too much. Even those of us who are in Christ still so, can so easily stumble back in to self-centered love. We have to die to self. Uh, that, is, that is the problem. And so as we look at our lives, as we look at our relationships, I'm going to give you guys a couple uh, things that can become tangible in our lives that can help us to measure where we are. The first one is time. When it comes to those that we are closest with, again, our, our spouses, our children, each other as the body of Christ, when it, comes with, when it comes to loving those closest to us, the number one indicator, I believe, that, that helps me to see how I'm doing is how I spend my time. How do we spend our time when it comes to our wives, when it comes to our husbands, when it comes to our children. And I mentioned the family, by the way, because just as you, we, you know, we have to love one another within the body, it's got to start in the household, right? I can't neglect my wife and my children and then try to, to serve my brothers and sisters at the Church of Blue Ridge. It's got to start. In fact, it's got to start with God. We know that. We don't want to assume the great commandment. We have to love God. A person who is not loving their wife or loving their husband or loving their children or, or, or not loving their, their fellow church members, they have a relationship problem with God first and foremost. So we even have to go all the way back to that. But time is the indicator. Again, talking about God, talking about my wife, talking about my children, talking about you all, how I choose to spend my time indicates um, where my priorities are. So start there. Even, even sit down with a sheet of paper and do an analysis. How we spend our time shows what is important to us, right? Shows what is important to us. And then if we drill down a little bit deeper, I can give you another in, a tangible aspect of loving other people. How well do you listen? How well, you're like, listen, what, where'd that come from? No, no, I'm serious. How well we actively listen to someone else when they're speaking shows how much we care about them. I have an undergraduate degree in communication, and I still remember when they taught us about listening. They said, you will never listen well unless you love well first. And this is coming from a secular university, right? How well do you listen? How 
well can you put aside all the other distractions, all of your thoughts, the responses that you want to make in the conversation. That's where we're all guilty. We call that nexting when we're thinking about our, our forming our response and not listening to the person talking to us. How well do you listen? That's a huge indicator of where you are in terms of loving another person that you're close to. So try it out this week. Put these into practice. Talk about it as husband and wife. And let's talk about it as a church family. So important. So important. Hold on a second. So uh, the other thing I want to show you guys, don't you love that? When you're sitting across from the table and the person's like, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This gets in the way a lot of loving one another. Just be aware of that. And if you're ever meeting with me and you pick your phone up and start doing this, just know that I, in my heart I've slapped you across the face. And that's a sin too, but we're not talking about that today, so we'll do that another week. So here on the screen, I want to give you, you might want to take a picture of this really quick, but I went through and found all of the one another verses in the New Testament. Do you think loving one another is important to the Holy Spirit? Every one of these verses applies the new commandment that we're given here and in chapter 13 to the body of Christ. So if you can't take a picture of it, do a, a word search yourself and any Bible tool, and you will find these great verses, but very important to the body of Christ. Now, with each of these four characteristics, and this is the longest one, by the way, but with each of these characteristics, I'm going to give you guys some keywords that are really important. Keywords. So this first characteristic, we've been saved to love. There's two keywords. The first one is what's expected of us. The second one is what God has given us to help obey, help us obey this. So the, the expected keyword when it comes to loving each other is sacrifice. That's what's required of us. We have to sacrifice ourself, our time, our priorities, and and kill those in some way in order to achieve and obey this. And then what we've been given by God to help is his example. So we're called to sacrifice, and we've been given the example of Jesus Christ to encourage and guide us to obey this one. So that's the first characteristic. The second one is this, invited. We've been invited to know. And what do I mean by that? Have you ever been part of an organization and you, you're a leader in the organization, but you are continually left out of meetings where decisions are made, where planning takes place. You subsequently feel like you're at the kids' table all the time. And this was my experience as an associate pastor in a traditional Baptist church where I was a pastor. I was biblically an elder, and yet I was never a part of the administrative council meetings where all the decisions were made by mostly uh, non-pastors. And it was so frustrating so I know what it's like to be left out at the kids' table. And what Jesus is telling us here in verse 15, which we're about to read, is God the Father has invited us through Christ into the planning phase of the gospel mission. Now, he's got the plan figured out. He's sovereign. We're going to see that in a little bit. But we have been brought in through the revelation of God, through Jesus. We've been brought into the plan. Look with me at verse 15. This is an incredible verse. Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants. By the way, that's the word slave. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. How amazing is that? What he's telling us here is I don't consider you slaves. Now, now, Jesus isn't indicating that up until now they've 
totally slaves in his mind. He's honing in on one aspect of slavery, and that is this. The slave isn't brought into the planning and discussion of whatever the project might be. He's just told what to do, or she's just told what to do. A slave is a means to an end. It's just a tool. Here's your orders. Go do them. And Jesus is saying here, that's not how it is with my children. That's not how it is with, my, with the church. I'm bringing you in because you are friends. And the word friend there, it's a noun, obviously, but it comes, it's the same root as the verb uh, phileo, or phylos, phylos, which is brotherly love, you know, Philadelphia. So the interpretation for the word friends is the object of one's love. That's what God considers us. That's what Jesus considers the disciples here and us as Christians today. We are the objects of his love. We are friends. He's bringing us into the planning and cooperation and partnership. We're partners with God in the fulfillment of his great commission, in the fulfillment of his kingdom enterprise. He considers us partners. How amazing is that? Look what D.A. Carson says here, two quotes They're on the same slide. First, as friends, they, the disciples, are informed of his thinking and enjoy his confidence and learn to obey with a sense of privilege and with a full understanding of the master's heart. He continues, he says, the distinguishing feature according to Jesus between friendship and slaves is not obedience, but revelation. We've been given an incredible gift, which is the revelation of God the very words of God to encourage us and empower us to fulfill his mission for his glory. How incredible is that? Now, but it is important to see, though, that he still is our master. The friendship isn't reciprocal friendship like we may have with another human, right? We don't don't tell Jesus what to do, in a sense, as a friend. He's still our master, but our master considers us not slaves, but friends, the object of his, his love. Beautiful beautiful truth for us. So in terms of application, we have to consider revelation as a gift from God. Now, how many of you, especially parents of young children, have a box in your attic or in your garage we call the re-gift box? No one's going to raise their hand because people in here have been to each other's baby showers, right? And, and kids' birthday parties. But we all, or a lot of us, have that re-gift box. And typically, you get a lot of gifts. You, you, know, you already have this or that. Or maybe it's a, a grandparent like my late stepmother who would just send so many gifts that we just would put a lot of them up, right? And, and it's the re-gift box. We're not trying to be mean, but hey, why waste it? Why not leave it in the package and then I can re-gift it one day, right? But here's the thing. That might be good for... for an overabundance of gifts at a baby shower. But when it comes to the precious words of God, we cannot treat his word like a re-gift where we just so easily toss it off into a box. The word of God is a precious gift that we have to steward well for the glory of God. Look at this passage from Paul in Romans 15. He says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the key word here, again, we talked about was saved to love. The the key word was uh, sacrifice, encouraged by Jesus' example. So the key word here is stewardship. When it comes to the revelation of God, we have a responsibility to steward his glorious revelation um, in an encouraging way. Of course, he's he's given us his word. That's what he's given us, his written word to steward 
uh, his truth, his revelation, again, for the sake of the mission. It's all for the sake of the mission, and it's all empowered by the Holy Spirit who is in us. So we've seen that we're saved to love, we're invited to know. Third, we're selected to go, selected to go. Read with me uh, the first part of verse 16. Jesus says to them, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. We'll stop there. We've been selected to go. I chose one word to govern the two verbs in this verse, that we were chosen and that we were appointed. Now, I believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation. This verse makes it very clear in my mind. Uh, In fact, it doesn't just say that he chose us. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. If he had not chosen these 11 men, they would not know Jesus. It's important for us to see the sovereignty of God in this great passage. But then also look at the verb appointed. We can't neglect that. I've seen many Christians who get excited about the doctrine of election that God has chosen them, but they should also get equally excited about that second verb, right? He chose us and he appointed us. That means he has set us aside for a particular task. What is that task? The mission, the gospel mission, taking the gospel to the nations. Anyone who gets excited about election but does not get equally excited about mission is what we call a hyper-Calvinist, and that's a waste of time. God has given us a mission, and we see both come together beautifully here. Now, what's amazing about this is you see in the gospel, just even in Jesus picking the 11 disciples, that he goes around and recruits them. But do you remember John chapter 1, the first two disciples were John, pretty much sure of that, John and Andrew. And if you remember, they were originally disciples of John the Baptist. The day after John the Baptist baptized Jesus, He sees Jesus walking again by the river, and he says to John and Andrew, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And at that point, John and Andrew, it seems, leave John the Baptist, and they go to Jesus. And they ask him, Hey, where are you staying? And he says, Come and see. It seems like they picked Jesus. But here, even in that case, Jesus has sovereignly chosen and has set up that whole situation for them to come. Now, whenever we see passages that teach on the sovereignty of God and salvation in the New Testament, we cannot neglect the purpose. And friends, the purpose is mission. The disciples and those of us who are in Christ have been selected to go. Are you starting to see a theme with these characteristics? They're all about the mission. And you see that. Are we to go? What are we to do? Jesus tells us that in verse 15, that we should go and that we should bear fruit. And that fruit should remain. In the context of all that we've studied, this has to refer to conversions. This has to refer to men, women, and children coming to saving faith in Christ, just like we have. This is the fruit of the mission. This is the fruit of the gospel given to us here. And what's interestingly, and this is, Robert actually helped me to see this this week, is you see that um, the going, the bearing the fruit, and even the fruit that remains are all contingent upon something happening in the future. That's why he uses the word should. I would think maybe it would be will. These things will happen. So what is it contingent upon? Because Jesus has not yet died, risen, ascended, and the Holy Spirit has not yet come. So it's contingent upon all those things still happening. But for us today, those things have happened. We're on this side of the cross. We're on this side of the Holy Spirit 
uh, being given to the church, here is what God is expecting us to do. Our salvation, right? His sovereignty and our salvation implies obedience in the mission field, implies going and taking the gospel to the nations. Look what Paul says here in 2 Timothy. Again, think about this. This is right before he's about to die. He says to Timothy, he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us, look at this, he gave these works to us in Christ before the ages began. God is not just sovereign in our salvation. He's sovereign in preparing a work for us, a mission for us as individuals and as a church. He prepared even that before creation. All we have to do as those who have already been saved is obey. Saved to love, invited to know, selected to go. A few application points here. Uh, why is this important? That's the first question that I think is important for us to ask. Why is the sovereignty of God important when it comes to mission? For me, it's two things, confidence and purpose. It gives me confidence on those bad days. If it wasn't for my faith in the sovereignty of God and him choosing to save me and calling me to be a pastor, I would have quit a long time ago. It gets me through the bad days. I'm reminded of his sovereignty. It gives me confidence and it reminds me of my purpose in his story. And I can, I can even take you all the way back to 1995. That's when I came to faith in Christ. The following summer in 1996, as I'm getting out of the military, there's, there's this great calling upon me to come back in one day as a chaplain. I didn't know it was going to take 23 years, but it, it, it started then. And then the following summer, 1997, I went to a, uh, a Stand in the Gap uh, uh, men's conference. I can't remember what that ministry is called. Anyways, I went to one of those, uh, the men's event, and there was a seminary tent outside, and I didn't know what seminary was, Dallas Theological Seminary, and I was like, wow, you can do that? And, and God used that to call me to preach, to be a pastor one day, and here I stand all these years later doing both, preaching the gospel, being a military chaplain. So it's important for us to find our lane. Christ has saved you. What is your lane? How is he calling you individually to fulfill your calling in the gospel ministry through the church at Blue Ridge. If you don't know the answer to that, we want to help you. In fact, I'll point you to Robert. Robert's the guy you want to go talk to. He heads up leadership development and mission, how God's calling us to reach the nations with the gospel. We want to help you find your lane. We want to see how God has gifted you, what passions he's given you. So let us know how we can help you discover how he wants to appoint and use you in the mission field through the local church. Very, very important. And here, look at this quote. I love this. You know this quote really well from Jim Elliott. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And we've got some incredible opportunities coming up here as a local church. Think about it. Easter is a month away. Easter is an incredible opportunity to invite friends. We want you to bring your friends, people maybe you're, you're inviting to your missional community group, possibly invite them to come and worship with us on Easter Sunday. Uh, lost people and, and unchurched people are a lot more sensitive to the things of God during this time of year. So take advantage of that, and we're going to help you do that. Uh, Danny, be praying for Danny. Danny's leading our college groups to do evangelism, especially in the month of April, right? Seeing it as a season of harvest. You can talk to him and find out more of what he's doing with evangelism. Also with, with our, our missional community groups, 
We're encouraging our missional community groups to find opportunities to do third space, to connect with people outside of both this room and the home. So talk to, to Daniel. Daniel will give you some more information on that. We got runner's camp coming up in June. You can talk to Carrie about that. We've done it for two years now. An incredible opportunity to connect the gospel with, with children in our neighborhood. So we're really excited about that coming up. And then Robert's working on some mission opportunities that we have in the fall, even an international trip. So see him about that opportunity and others in the future. Even mentoring here in this very school. They've asked us to provide mentors for middle school boys and girls. Who among us cannot give up a half an hour, one lunch period a week to come and, and get to know and serve and, and love on a, a middle schooler? So great opportunity to see Robert for those. But finally, we get to our last characteristic. Oh, by the way, the keywords: what we've been given, what's expected of us to multiply. That's what God expects for us, to multiply. What has he given us to encourage us in this? His sovereignty. His sovereignty in being in control of all things. So the final one, the final characteristic, we have been encouraged to pray. Encouraged to pray. So saved to love, invited to know, selected to go. Finally, encouraged to pray. Look back with me at verse 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide or remain. Here it is. So that Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So here for the third time in the last four weeks, in this passage, we're told by Jesus, commanded by Jesus, to pray in his name to the Father and then given a promise that when we do that, he will give it. Now, is this any type of prayer? Like, Lord, I need a Corvette. Will you please give me a Corvette? or I want that. No, it's all in the context of the mission. It's all in the context of us engaging the nations with the gospel, seeking to bear fruit. That pleases the Father more than anything. So when we're engaged in that, we come before him and pray in the name of Jesus, in according with Jesus' will, his gospel will, and God the Father will answer it. He's challenging us here. The question is, are we up for it? And I think of all of that I studied this week, all of these four characteristics, this is the one that convicts me the most. I am woefully negligent in this area. And I confess that to you as your pastor. Love getting together and planning for mission and ministry and Sunday morning. But in terms of spending time in this type of prevailing prayer, where the focus is not health requests, that's good. We want to continue to give those prayer requests through missional community. But whether it's as a large church, whether it's as a staff, whether it's as missional community groups, devoting time on a regular basis to where we're just praying for the harvest. We're just praying for the work of God through his spirit to save men, women, and children here in Traveler's Rest, here in North Greenville County, and around the world. We need to do a better job. I need to do a better job of this. And God has convicted me of that in a major way. You, you heard me talk about the Moravians earlier. What I didn't tell you, because I was saving it for right now, is the backstory. Yes, in, in 1732, they sent out their first two missionaries. And that would be the first of five missionary uh, endeavors that they would begin and maintain all before William Carey ever left England in 1792. But what preceded that? Five years before those men left Copenhagen for St. Thomas, uh, the Moravians had to leave where they were, 
and they ended up in Saxony, Eastern Germany. And there was a very pious, uh, strong-in-the-faith Lutheran named Count von, Count von Zinzendorf. Okay? And this guy let them live on their, his large estate. And he was all about prayer. He taught them to pray. And they started praying. In fact, they started a prayer service in 1727 that lasted 100 years. Can you imagine that? They had someone praying every hour. This prevailing prayer, just like we learned about, for the nations, for a hundred years without stopping. I'm not saying we start there, all right? But we need to do something. Well, what happened during that time period of the next 60 years but the first great awakening? Yes, we learn about John Wesley and Whitfield and Edwards, but we rarely talk about the Moravians. In fact, Moravian missionaries led John Wesley to Christ on a boat going to Savannah. These guys are huge, and they give us an incredible example of, of praying in the harvest, that God would glorify himself through us in other churches around the world. Uh, We have our marching orders here, no doubt. So a couple application points, and then we'll be done. First, Paul asked for this type of prayer several times in his letters. Here's one example from the end of Colossians. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us. Here's the great Paul asking this little podunk church out in the country that he's never even been to, to pray for his ministry. He says, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may speak it clear, which is how I ought to speak. He's even sitting in prison at this point, influencing missions, no doubt, planning to get out soon so he can continue, but he's asking them to pray. So here's an example of this type of prevailing prayer for fruitfulness. And then you'll see a reference at the bottom, and you can see at the end of several of his other letters, he does the same thing. I encourage you to look those up on your own time and read them. Excellent, excellent. And as I mentioned here, we need something like this at the Church of Blue Ridge. I don't know who it is that God's gifted and called to help lead us in this type of prevailing prayer, but come see me. Whether you're on staff, whether you're a mission community group leader, we need to, uh, to do this. We need to get this type of prayer going more so in our church. And we cannot forget the role of the Holy Spirit with every one of these characteristics. It's not about us. It's about his power through us that he does these things, all of these things that we're, we're talking about. And finally, the key words for us, obvious, he's expecting us to pray. Expecting us to pray in Jesus's name. And he's given us to encourage us his promise. In fact, here's a slide on the screen that has all of the key words that I've, I've mentioned from today's sermon, from each of these four characteristics of a fruitful church. So you can see them there if you didn't get a chance to write them down. But with love, saved to love, he's calling us to sacrifice and he's giving us his example through Jesus Christ to encourage us. When it comes to invited to know, he's, he's stewardship, right? He's giving us his word to steward. When it comes to selected to go, it's for a purpose, to multiply, to bear fruit. And he's given us his will, his sovereign will as an encouragement to build confidence in us. Uh, And then finally, as we just learned, to pray. To pray, and he's given us his great, great promise. And so I'm gonna go ahead and invite the band to come back up, uh, Nicholas and Micah, as we have a song of response. But I wanna also give an invitation to all of us. Uh, And this, of course, gospel invitation. If you don't know the Lord, if you're doubtful of where you are with him, that's a priority conversation. Come see me today. Come see one of the pastors today. We'd love to share the gospel with you. Hunt us down this week. Text, email. Uh, We want to have that conversation with you. But for those of us who are believers, members of the church, I want to give you a challenge, a challenge to make all four of these characteristics 
characteristic of you. You have the power, you have the Holy Spirit, you have his word, and you have the body of Christ. You're not alone in this, right? We're to do this together. But go through some point this week and review these characteristics, maybe, maybe as a, a missional community group even tonight, and especially with that final one, how can we as a body of Christ spend more time intentionally praying in the harvest of souls locally and abroad? Let's go to him now in prayer. Father, thank you for this humbling reminder from your word, encouraging, but very, very humbling as well. Lord, we know that it's dependent upon your Holy Spirit, not just to save us, which you've done for those of us who are believers, but also to obey. Obeying, keeping your commandments, these are indicatives of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. As believers, though, we have a choice to cooperate or not. And I pray for myself and my friends here that you would help us to cooperate, being obedient to you, to making time for you each day, which is our prime relationship, the most important relationship, the time we spend talking to you and hearing from your word. Lord, make that a priority. Stir up in us through your Holy Spirit such a movement, such a movement of God that it would shake the nations once more, like you did through the small group of Moravian brethren who were so committed to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and the gospel of Jesus going forth to the nations. Burden us, Lord, in a supernatural way that we would make you our priority more than ever, that we would make the mission of this church our priority more than ever, that we would make your great commission our priority more than ever, regardless of what it might cost us through self-sacrifice. Oh, Lord, stir us up in this way. Let us leave here changed. And let this not just be another sermon, but a moment in time that we can look back to to see when you visited us and began an incredible work for your glory and for the gospel going forth. It's the name of Jesus Christ we ask these things. Amen.